This is an ABC podcast. What does it take to interfere with an election? Well, this week on Download This Show, massive revelations from at least one firm reveals just how powerful hacking and misinformation campaigns can be on elections. Also on the show, why are Twitter threatening to turn off one of the world's most popular security measures? And is your data in Australia about to become a lot more private? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, uh, political reporter with The Guardian, Paul Karp. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Mark. And Vanessa Teague is a cryptographer and associate professor at ANU and the CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity. Welcome back, Vanessa. Hi, Mark. So, uh, Twitter announced something weird this week with two-factor authentication for people's Twitter accounts, didn't they, Paul? Can you tell me what happened? Yeah, so I got this message uh, explaining that they are going to uh, turn off the use of SMS for two-factor authentication uh, unless users upgraded to Twitter Blue, which is the the paid service. Uh, And that was a a concern to me because I have two-factor authentication turned on but rely on the SMS, and the alternative is to to, to get it uh, through an authenticator app. You know, for for a lot of users, uh, this won't have an impact because they don't have two-factor authentication set up. But, you know, the, the bigger your account is and the more followers you have, the more important it is to, to keep it secure. And so this seems like a, a decision trying to, to nudge those, you know, medium and bigger uh, sized users uh, towards the paid product. There is a long-standing truism in technology world that uh, you should never ask people to pay for something that they previously got for free. Vanessa, is this the sort of thing that would make you want to pay to become a, a Twitter Blue member? <laughs> nope. Uh, so just for the record, Paul, if I were you, I would just get a nice, free, preferably open source authenticator app if you want to stay on Twitter. I think Good that's advice. the correct solution. Um, although I agree that trying to nudge people into the paid service is a bit obnoxious. SMS two-factor is probably not the best way to do it anymore. I guess there's a few things going on with this one, Vanessa, and I, and I, I think it's almost like two separate conversations. One, which is like, the, I guess, the, the argument about how do you move people into being paid subscribers? And then there's the actual security thing. So, so I guess let's just do the, the, force, the, the first one, which is about, you know, Twitter is obviously in need of getting people to pay for this service. And there's a set sort of array of features that you can offer or withdraw that will make people do it. It sounds very much to me listening to you talk that the, the removal of two-factor authentication isn't a, isn't a pay isn't the sort of thing that would shift the dial on whether or not you'd pay for Twitter. So I guess the inverse of that is what would like what actually would make you pay to use Twitter? Nothing. <laughs> I've uh, I haven't even used my account since Elon Musk bought it, and uh, <laughs> I don't even want to use it for free. I'm just kind of leaving it dormant while I figure out which Mastodon server to join. What about for you, Paul? Are there particular functions that would make you pay or wouldn't make you pay? Look, I I think if you use it as a broadcast mechanism, as a way to reach an audience, um, the the most important thing is getting your tweets in front of eyeballs. And when uh, Elon Musk started talking about, oh, well, if, if the app is going to deprioritise people who haven't paid for Twitter Blue, I mean, that would be 
really the thing that would get celebrities, public uh, public figures, uh, lowly reporters, uh, you know, who, who still like to talk to their audience like that. That would be the thing that would push them, you know, knowing that you could have 10 or 20,000 followers, but they won't see your tweets because instead their timeline is going to be filled with people who are, who are paying for the privilege. I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that would, would push people to pay. Is there anything that Twitter could do to, to bring you back, Vanessa? I know you were saying you hadn't used it since, since Elon Musk took over, and I think you're certainly not alone in that regard. Is there anything they could do, or is it really just all dead for you at the moment? Good question. <laughs> I try. You know, I really do try with the good questions. Well, first of all, not everything that was wrong with Twitter came from the Musk purchase. That was more of the catalyst than anything else. I think... Obviously, we expect it to be a commercial platform that makes a buck from selling ads. And so anybody who's using Twitter and doesn't recognise it as that is probably kidding themselves. Mm. However, I'd also like to think that the material I see is to some extent influenced by the people I chose to follow, like Paul, for example. Mm. And... The appropriate balance between those two things, between reflecting honestly the genuine material that the user wants to see versus reflecting because of economic priorities the ads that the that Twitter's customers want their merchandise to see is hard and for me it's a matter of balance i accept that i'm going to see some ads because the advertising agencies are twitter's real customers but i really object to seeing Exactly as Paul said, I really object to my preferences being totally overridden by ads. And the other thing I really object to is that things look like genuine tweets or genuine material or genuine trends that are actually pretty clearly paid for sometimes. Mm. There has been an argument, Vanessa, uh, after this announcement that regardless of whether people kind of move off to authenticator apps, broadly speaking, it will make the Twitter platform more insecure, more vulnerable to, to hacking. What do you make of those claims? I think it depends whether people just turn off their second factor or whether they use an authenticator app. So the, the people who switch from SMS to an authenticator app will be more secure, generally speaking. The people who just turn off their second factor will be less secure. There's a part of this that I I think that one of my confusions with this story is, I guess, sort of just the why. Like, it seems like... <laughs> it's just like, it's just speaking as a Twitter user. It just seems like an unnecessary annoyance and not the sort of thing. Like, I think if you're trying to accrue paid subscribers, sort of implicit within that is that you need to kind of offer greater value rather than take away, like, even a perceived value of security, right? I think there's like from a business, like, there's a business standpoint and then there's yes. like a security standpoint. And I feel like the conflating of the two has like ended up with just a really silly decision on a number of levels, because why are you asking somebody to pay for something that feels like it should it's almost become standard? I think that's what I find most confusing about this, Vanessa. Does that make sense to you? Uh, you're saying this is a dumb piece of financial decision-making? Yes. Yeah, there's the contradiction uh, in, the, in the logic. They said, oh, SMS uh, two-factor is less secure than using an authenticator app, but if you pay for Twitter Blue, you get the privilege of continuing to use the less secure of the yeah, two exactly. two-factor authenticator methods. It, it didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> this, this, this somewhat substandard form. Right. Okay, so let's talk about authenticators then, right? 
Um, there will be a lot of people that already use authenticators, but Vanessa, for people that haven't used one before, and there'll be plenty of people that their first kind of consideration of using one will be, you know, logging onto their Twitter account being told, pay or use this thing called an authenticator. What actually is an authenticator, Vanessa? What does it do? It's an app that gives you another usually random looking little string of digits to prove who you are. So the idea, it's a lot, you know what getting a six digits through SMS looks like. The Authenticator app looks very, very similar, except instead of getting the number by SMS, you get it from a little app on your other device or on the same device. Is that something that you probably will do, Paul, now that now that we've outed you as a person who's gotten one of these notifications? Well, I actually tried to set it up, uh, uh, had to change my password in the course of that, and then uh, tried too many times consecutively to log in and got locked out of Twitter on my phone uh, <laughs> as, a, as a security measure. So at the moment, I can access uh, Twitter on my work computer, but not on my phone. And honestly, it's done wonders for my productivity because... Yes, I, likewise. <laughs> Exactly. I'm, I'm out walking my greyhound and unable to look at Twitter. I just have to look mm-hmm. at nature. It's. Uh... Do you think there is an argument that's floating around, Vanessa, that authenticators are inherently better? Uh, is that necessarily the case? I mean, not just particularly in light of Paul's experience. Oh, I wouldn't say they're absolutely guaranteed to be better. Uh, obviously, you're, you could design an authenticator app that's insecure and broken and dumb, but as a general pattern, because SMS is not very secure. A decently designed authenticator app ought to be, for example, it ought to be sending the, either generating the numbers on the device or receiving them through an end-to-end encrypted channel from the server. And so both of those methods would be, ought to be a lot more secure than the SMS system. All right. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. The voice you just heard is Vanessa Teague, a cryptographer, associate professor at ANU and the CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity, alongside Paul Carp, political reporter with The Guardian. Mark Fennell is my name. And Paul, it looks like people's entitlement to privacy may be about to change. There's been a new proposal out of the government. Could you tell me what's happened? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the Attorney General's Department has completed a review of the Privacy Act and these aren't government policy uh, ideas yet, but they could go into um, the next privacy bill that the Attorney-General introduces. And it's it's ideas like um, being able to opt out of targeted ads, uh, getting uh, rights to uh, ask companies to erase your data, uh, such as exist in the European Union at the moment, and also uh, an idea that's been around for a very long time uh, that was backed by the Law Reform Commission, which is the ability to sue for serious breaches of privacy, which a lot of people uh, might be surprised is is not already a feature of Australian law. So, Vanessa, what do you make of what's been floated as, as potential changes? I think it all sounds good, but when you read the fine print, it's not quite as good as it sounds because it doesn't guarantee to protect de-identified but identifiable information. I'd like that explained a bit more. That's an interesting concept that'll be new for lots of people. This concept is done to death in the report without actually resolving it in any way. So here's an example. Suppose, think about something like your telecommunications metadata. Long detailed list of all the uh, communications towers you connected to and the people you SMSed or called. If it's stored by your uh, phone company typically has your name and probably your billing address or whatever attached to it. 
But it could be de-identified. In other words, they could remove your name and your email address and your phone number and your obvious identifiers from it and just leave the data itself. The issue is that with a big, detailed, complicated individual record of something as uh, as connected with your life as your telecommunications metadata, the data itself is likely to identify you. So, for example, if I know where you live, I know where you work, I know uh, the phone numbers of your friends or your family members, I could identify your telecommunications metadata record out of a great big long database of other people's records just from knowing a few facts about what's likely to be in your record that are Mm. not going to be in anybody else's. And the same is true for your health record, your tax record, your uh, dating app record, and all kinds of other bits of data that relate to you, but can have your explicit identifying details stripped off them. So the big question is, if the data has been de-identified, in other words, it's had the most obvious identifiers of you stripped off it, but it's still identifiable by people who know enough about you to spot your record in the database even without your name, should it be considered to be personal information and hence protected under the Privacy Act, or should it be considered to be de-identified and hence not protected? There are some attempts uh, to fix that. There's, uh, they want to consult on a criminal offence for malicious re-identification of de-identified data where there's an intention to harm or, or gain an illegitimate benefit. But I, I agree that that doesn't go all the way uh, to, to, to addressing that concern. Um, and there, there is also that they want to add a few new types of data to be personal information, things like geolocation tracking data. So there is some attempt to fix that, but it doesn't, it doesn't completely do it. I guess, Vanessa, the question then kind of becomes, what are the sorts of changes that, that would solve or some of those issues that you identified there? Are there obvious things that could be done that would navigate those issues? Yes. So the European General Data Protection Regulation is very clear on this point. It says... Personal information is information that relates to an identified or identifiable individual. That's it. In other words, if it's identifiable, it's personal information and it gets all the protections of European privacy law. The Australian Privacy Act has a weasel word <laughs> inserted. It says personal information is about information about a person who's identified or reasonably identifiable, which begs the question, what the hell does reasonably mean? And nobody knows. So we have this really unclear situation where it's really not clear whether information that is identifiable, but not in a really obvious way, is personal information or not. And I think the simple answer is we just adopt the GDPR wording and make it clear that all identifiable information about that relates to a person is personal information. Paul, looking at what's already been announced, are there... Is there the potential that you can foresee for sort of unintended consequences should these things do end up actually becoming law? Well, there's been a pretty positive reaction to this. Digi, uh, which represents search and social media companies, has has welcomed it. I think the thing with the biggest potential for unintended consequences is actually the right to sue for serious privacy breaches. I think media companies might have concerns about that and it's going to be important to see uh, where the line is drawn because we don't want it to 
be like defamation law where it's it's used by you know powerful people who can afford you know lawyers and to to send um, threatening legal letters to people to try and suppress uh, public interest reporting so we there's still uh, like a conversation that we need to have about how serious does a breach of privacy have to be um, before it would be actionable under that uh, new tort. So thinking of some some recent examples, Brittany Higgins was photographed in, in public uh, recently. Merely being in a public place doesn't seem like a serious breach of privacy, but would Barnaby Joyce's partner being photographed pregnant and slapped on the front page of the Daily Telegraph with the headline bundle of Joyce, would that be actionable? So it's it like it, 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 it there really is there really is an important debate about where the line is drawn there. For you, Vanessa, just looking at what's been uh, proposed here, are there unintended consequences that you would be particularly wary of? Yes. I think that criminalising re-identification rather than protecting identifiable data is really dumb. And I am a little bit personally biased because we were the research group that nearly went to jail when George Brandis amused himself by inventing a re-identification ban off the cuff. I think it's really important to understand that banning re-identification doesn't actually protect the data. It might protect the open explanation of how insecure the data is. But the only thing that really protects security of the data is stopping the sharing of identifiable data in the first place. Download the show is the name of the program. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Vanessa Teague, Associate Professor at ANU and the CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity and Paul Carp from The Guardian. Mark Fennell is my name. And just how easy is it to influence an election? Uh, there's been a major report about an Israeli firm that has sought to influence some 30 different elections around the world using methods like hacking and sabotage and spreading disinformation, which sounds, you know, fairly serious. But exactly how does that work on the ground, Paul? Yes, so it's uh, an Israeli contractor by the name of Tal Hanan who was caught by a consortium of undercover journalists who who went undercover to uh, record his boasts uh, about what he could do for clients in in terms of uh, interfering in elections, things that are termed uh, black ops, like he demonstrated uh, being able to access uh, people's emails and telegram accounts. Uh, There's also uh, the use of software that controls, you know, 30,000 fake online profiles to try and uh, direct the conversation on social media. Now, he uh, denies any wrongdoing, but uh, it's uh, certainly interesting to see just how much technology can be used to try and um, interfere with uh, democratic conversations, because obviously, we need this huge flow of information between people um, to, to help them decide how to make their, their minds up on how to vote. But if stories are being planted in the media, if the conversation is being directed on social media by paid actors uh, as a form of, of, of interference, then that can skew uh, the, the democratic election results. Vanessa, we are sort of building a lot of this picture out of essentially boasts and claims from this guy. As you go through it, which bits kind of seem plausible and like it actually is how it worked and which bits would you kind of put over into the um, upsell territory? Yeah, that's a really good question. That was exactly my question when I was reading the article because by definition, this guy, at least by his own boast, specialises in manipulating information to make you think whatever he wants you to think. So I don't know, right? It's not as if anybody does proper evidence-based testing 
of this kind of stuff. It probably somewhat works. It probably doesn't work as well as the people spruiking it claim it does. Apart from that, I don't know. So it's one thing that we did, we did get from that, though, with some of the techniques that were used. Um, there are techniques there that I guess they're not new, but they are kind of interesting. Could you walk me through some of the different techniques that, the, that they talked about, Vanessa? Uh, it looked like he was breaking into some of the hopefully older and less secure uh, SMS networks and uh, intercepting, reading and spoofing traffic. So that was the, I forget the name of the exact vulnerability that he referred to, but that was the one mentioned in The Guardian. Uh, And that is certainly old news, which doesn't mean it isn't effective. Paul, were there things that stood out to you in terms of techniques that you were like, oh, that's interesting? Some of the results were appearing to have advanced notice of the Nigerian Electoral Commission um, delaying the election, which is, you know, very concerning. Uh, In terms of techniques, though, I mean, we are taught to be wary of what looks like, you know, coordinated mass social media by bots or, you know, as a form of foreign interference uh, in elections. Uh, I've, I've certainly sat through a lot of, of, of hearings of um, there was a Senate committee that looked into foreign interference through social media. It's come up in the Electoral Matters Committee as well. And, you know, in the Australian context, they've said that uh, they've found minimal use of bots uh, in in recent federal elections, but that it is a point of, uh, of vulnerability in the Australian system, not having sufficient laws to protect against that. And it, it really relies on Political parties contacting the social media companies uh, and the social media companies taking that seriously and acting very quickly to try and prevent, you know, bots or disinformation campaigns uh, like the claim that Labor was going to introduce a death tax. And in general, the social media companies have been getting uh, better at that, but progress on that is not is not guaranteed. You can see that if a social media company went through a bout of cost-cutting or lost a lot of employees after a recent change of ownership... <laughs> I wonder. I wonder who that could be. You can understand how removing, <laughs> removing misinformation uh, might not be the top, uh, the top priority anymore. They might not have the staff left to, to do that. So it, it, it is a concern. Vanessa, just looking at this story and, and other stories that have come out about interference in elections, how many of these things are the sorts of attacks you can mitigate against? Like, are there, are there things that can be that, that nations, electoral commissions around the world can do now to manage against some of these issues? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, just because they're not detecting it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not happening. I think that's the first thing I'd say. I'm sure that AAC is doing a good job of having a look at Twitter and Facebook and so forth. I'd be less totally confident that they have enough fluent Chinese readers to read WeChat or enough fluent readers of Persian or Arabic or any other languages in which other misinformation could potentially be spread to Australians in Australia. They just I doubt that they have the capacity to really keep an eye on really everything. So I think that we shouldn't necessarily assume that it isn't happening because it isn't being detected. Is there anything we can do? Not really, I don't think, apart from implement some decent privacy law that at least makes micro-targeting illegal, even if it probably doesn't stop. And I actually think that funding good quality journalism, at the risk of being somewhat sycophantic given that this is the ABC, uh, (laughs) funding things like the ABC and The Guardian to do a better job 
is actually better than necessarily trying to kill everything that isn't strictly true. And just on micro-targeting, that was uh, one of the recommendations of, of the Privacy Act review was that um, political parties should not be able to target voters based on sensitive uh, information or traits uh, and that you should be able to opt out of them targeting you at all. So uh, that's, that, 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 would be, that would be one thing we could do. In terms of the sheer number of elections that, that were influenced, Paul, were there things that surprised you in, in terms of perhaps who was hiring? Most of the elections they claim to have interfered in were in African countries. I've reported on, I think, three Australian federal elections. I'm not an expert on the democratic systems there and how, how robust they are, but you can see if it's if it's targeting newer democracies that um, there might be a vulnerability in, in less well-established institutions uh, able to, to, to resist those sorts of things. Maybe... Uh, countries uh, resource dependent that um, you might get more return from changing a result. I'm not sure who paid or how much it was worth to to, to do that, but um, those were the countries that were targeted according to the investigation. I guess the reason I ask is 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 really more about lessons that we can take away from it. You're talking about the experience you've had covering political elections, and also certainly there there was you know some reporting around uh, misinformation in federal elections and things of that, and, and micro targeting. I guess the what I'm trying to work out is how applicable examining these experiences in other countries might be to us? Well, we're a middle power that is, you know, closely allied with the US and UK. I think the biggest risk for Australian democracy is probably uh, state actors that want to cause us difficulties. I mean, Russia, we've seen in the US context um, investigations about about uh, their interests in, in the US election you can see that there might be similar reasons to try and get involved in Australian elections, even if um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence uh, that that has happened so far. One of the points you made earlier, Vanessa, is that in many ways, some of the techniques that have been boasted about and may in fact actually been used here are not particularly groundbreaking. But I guess that doesn't diminish the fact that they they are still serious and they're quite nasty as well. Yes, agree. And I think there are lessons for Australia and things that we have to think about. I would actually say there are Big lessons for Australia from the United States, which I do know a lot more about, although like Paul, I don't know very much about Africa at all. One of the huge things that has started happening in the United States in the last few years is misinformation and distrust about the electoral process itself. So never mind nasty ads about the policies of the other parties, but actual claims that the actual vote counting process is broken, fraudulent, manipulated, etc. I actually think there's a really good antidote to that kind of particularly poisonous uh, attempt to undermine democracy, and that is to design really good, really transparent electoral processes. So I think a large part of the reason that Australia hasn't had that kind of trouble is that for the most part, we have very transparent paper-based elections. And uh, even though our Senate votes are electronically counted, we now have new legislation that the electronic count has to be audited in the sense that the paper ballots have to go and be sampled to demonstrate that they're accurately digitised. So I think we can, to some extent, combat misinformation with genuine, transparent evidence about the thing. And it may not be perfect, but it's the best solution I can think of. 
I really hope you're right. Uh, we are out of time. Vanessa Teague is a cryptographer, associate professor at ANU and the CEO of Thinking Cybersecurity. Thanks for coming back on the show, Vanessa. My pleasure. And Paul Carp, political reporter with The Guardian Australia. Thank you again, Paul. It was lovely to have you on the show. Come back and do it again, please. Cheers. Love to. And with that, I should leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.